What's the real potential threat or danger of AI broadly? The, the, the ability to, to generate, just as an example, elections as an example, uh, to be able to put out fake news in, in an instant, that if you, can, if you don't have the ability to identify it immediately as being fake, um, people will believe it. Um, the war of the world's all over again, as an example. Um, but to be able to do that in short order and to do it multiple times, to attribute to someone things that, that, they're, that they didn't do, but make it look like they did do. Welcome back to the interview podcast. From Millbank, South Dakota, this is Craig Weinberg. Theinterviewpodcast.org is our website where you can find all the conversations archived there that we've had over the years. It's also where you can help support the show. If you get value out of this podcast and these conversations, go to theinterviewpodcast.org, click on the support button, and whatever value that you receive from the show, turn that back into dollars, send it back our way so we can have these conversations with people around the world. Today, I had the pleasure of the second round, we'll call it round two, with U.S. Senator from South Dakota, Mike Rounds. This time, though, we had more time, and we got to sit around his kitchen table at his home here in South Dakota. And it was just a great opportunity to hear and kind of get a glimpse inside the thought process of Senator Mike Rounds. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Mike, for inviting us into your home. Enjoy. A lot has changed in the whole governing world. Um, you know, with the what happened in the House recently and just the stuff going on in the world. Um, in the last year, what's been, I mean, what, what's, what's different in your focus now? Um, but, you know, with Ukraine and Israel and um, the AI stuff, I'd want to kind of talk to a little bit. Uh, how have things adjusted in the last year? Probably as much as anything, uh, it, it's been a change internally. Okay. You can call it the Trump effect if you want, but it's it's a, it's a it's a uh, um, almost a, a a group which is looking inside the United States rather than the big picture of what's going to happen outside the United States as well. Uh, the, the idea that that um, you know it's a it's a populist type of attitude that says that that we're we're going to take care of the United States before we take care of anybody else. And that can be really dangerous because we don't fight our wars here inside the United States. We fight our wars away from the United States because we don't want to have bloodshed on our, you know, in our backyard. And so the reason that, that we are focused on other countries is because if we can limit the amount of bloodshed, if we can limit the amount of violence over there and stop some of these really aggressive attacks by Putin and you know, the threat by Xi Jinping in, in Taiwan and the, what's going on right now with, with uh, our allies Israel, 
we can stop that type of, um, of uh, violence from reaching our shores. And at the same time, there's a real frustration in the country with our southern border. I mean, we've had close to 8 million encounters on the southern border with people illegally or um, a, a claim of amnesty or of, uh, of, of asylum uh, th that's brought people in. And people here in the upper Midwest as well as elsewhere recognize that it's wrong, uh, that, that what's going on is, is, is not uh, the way that it should be working at all. Mm -hmm. And so they're really frustrated by that. And then on top of it, most of us are feeling the, the heat of what some people call Bidenomics, what the president calls well, Bidenomics. He calls that now, right. But Bidenomics has hurt our country. And, and in particular, normal people just trying to get along. In South Dakota, the cost of living for the average household since Joe Biden took office is up 900 and $95 a month, almost $12,000 a year in additional living expenses for a family of four. You can't be happy with that if you're looking at it and it's your family, your, your wages can't keep up with that. Is it, you know, you, you look from the, at the left, at, at the Democrat, uh, I, I follow their Instagram page and I, I mean, they clearly see things differently. Um, is it fair or accurate to say, to, to lay that directly on the president, no matter the party? You know, because... In this particular case, yes. Is there? Okay. And let me share why. Bidenomics is a policy decision. If you look at the reason why inflation went out of control for a while, and even now, with the Federal Reserve doing everything they can to stop it, it's still going up, it's still up over 3%. Mm -hmm. And you can't have that, that type of activity as long as you have energy that mm -hmm. is driving the price up. Joe Biden declared war on, on traditional energy sources the day he came into office when he signed a, a, you know, basically a, an authorization shutting down a $2 billion pipeline. That sent shockwaves to the investment community in the United States saying, if one guy can shut down a $2 billion mm -hmm. project with a stroke of a pen, mm -hmm. I better be looking at other things to invest in because I can't afford that type of a, of a loss. It's interesting, I interviewed uh, the mayor of um, <clears throat> Ketchikan Borough in Alaska a couple of years ago. And I asked specifically what, you know, because they're an isolated state. Um, and they have a huge pool of res natural resource and oil. Um, I asked him, I said, what does that do to you as a, as a small government entity in Alaska when D.C., based on the president that comes in every four years, will willy-nilly like play with that resource as a, essentially an, an election pawn? Um, and he said it's extremely difficult. So they can't plan long-term at all up there because you don't know what the next president's going to do with access to getting oil up in Anwar and the north part of Alaska. Look, we, the, the idea of, of cli climate change, it's real. I mean, climate change is happening. But you can't stop climate change by simply shutting down energy in the United States. It, we, we don't contribute that much to the overall impact. And you can't stop China and you can't stop India. 
where the vast majority of the carbon is flowing in and, and, and other chemicals are flowing into the atmosphere today. But we can do a lot better job of actually being able to afford to clean up the environment if we have a healthy economy. And I'm going to come back to this again now. Look, the Federal Reserve has tried their best using a demand side product, which is basically interest rates, to slow down the economy. But the problem is, is that people still have to fill up their car with gas. People still have to, to, to heat their homes. The price for utilities, utilities and energy is up 50% since Joe Biden took office. That's not helping our economy one bit. And, and yet at the same time now, because of the Federal Reserve's real attempt to try to get a hold of this inflation, which I say is supply side driven because of energy prices going up, they've taken this blunt force instrument and that's hurt the American people as well because now look at what's happened to interest rates. If you try to buy a home right now, your oh, interest man. rates are higher. Yeah. If you want to sell a home, you're not going to get as much for your home because interest rates are higher. People can't afford as much of a monthly payment as they could before. And then you think about that and then you say, well, what about credit cards? We're at all time highs on credit cards and the interest rates on credit cards are up over 28%. Up over 28%. Some of them are going as high as 32%. And it's based upon the fact that the Federal Reserve has pushed that blunt force instrument. And in doing so, all other interest rates have gone up as well. This is not good for the American economy. This is not good for the average American family. So I'm going to come right back down to it. This could be fixed if the Biden administration would get away from this idea that the, of worshiping at the altar of climate change and recognize that we can't do it by ourselves and that we've got to have a strong economy. If we could get back to actually being able to produce the energy that we need and to become a supplier of energy elsewhere, mm -hmm. then the impacts of what Putin is doing in Ukraine would be lessened because if we were producing energy, we would not be seeing the high prices coming because of a lack of energy coming from, from, from Russia, which is basically a gas station. How much of the inflation problem came from the, the money that was being created and thrown about for free during, uh, during the pandemic yeah, era. A, a sick, a, there's about $5.7 trillion that I count that was put into the economy since Joe Biden came in that Republicans, for the most part, did not support. That $5.7 trillion heated up the economy, and it's what the Federal Reserve has now focused on to try to cool off. If we had not done those last two or three major infusions of money into the economy, since Joe Biden came into office, you would not have had the Federal Reserve jamming the interest rates up as quickly as they did. So it, it, it was, I think, a miscalculation. They thought that by simply borrowing the money and infusing it into the economy, it would soften the landing after the pandemic. I think it did lessen the, the, uh, the impact, but it extended out the pain because of the interest rates that are now still with us. Yeah, I, I mean, we bought a house in 2020 <clears throat> with almost free money because the rates were incredible. Um, today, there's no way that, that I could even remotely afford the house with where they're at today. And th that's directly tied to the available cash. I mean, there's money getting thrown out. Like, and still today, a friend of mine um, is in Texas, and because he had payroll, uh, he is waiting right now they've it's all been approved he's waiting for his esg or whatever um 
ESG is the wrong wrong <laughs> term, but the the uh, employee retention credit ERC um, over two million dollars he's going to get still today in 2023. Yeah, it, look, it, it it is flowing, but it has been reduced dramatically. But it's still coming through, and that is still infusing into the economy, but not as fast as what it was before. But isn't that still kind of perpetuating the problem? It is. And, and, and once again, this is a Biden administration decision to infuse additional cash into the economy. But it's not as fast as it was before. Um, most, of that is, most of that is now de- being depleted. We're d- digging a hole slower now, basically. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I mean, we are. It's better. I mean, so, it's moving the right direction. Yeah, well, and the fact that we've got the House back in Republican hands has helped because now he doesn't have access um, using a, basically a, a partisan approach for, for um, reconciling the House and the mm-hmm. Senate bill, which allowed them to basically spend money mm-hmm. one, one time every year in a, in, in a reconciliation of the House and the Senate appropriations bill. The only time you can do that is when you have the House and the Senate and the President in agreement, and um, and they can do it with a with a majority vote. It it uh, it is the way that he has put a huge amount of money back into the economy, which now has increased the debt uh, even more than what it was. You know, we're at about thirty three point six, thirty three point seven trillion dollars right now in debt. And, That's um, insane. Well, it it look it it, it it's a, been acquired over a period of time but it has substantially gone up over the last four years mm-hmm. as we've had a pandemic that we needed to borrow money and to, to basically allow people to live when they could not work. Um, but it has continued on throughout the entire Biden administration and it, it has hurt the economy now because rather than pulling back into what we had been spending beforehand, he is still attempting to spend money that we don't have. The other piece of this, though, that nobody's really talking a lot about, that I'm going to talk about a little bit more all the time, is when you have the inflation rate where it's at right now, it means then that interest that the federal government has to pay on the debt goes oh, up. It's got to be, yeah. And so where we were borrowing money to the tune where we were paying for three point, for, for about for about thirty three trillion dollars in debt we were running uh, about $420 billion a year in interest. That's gonna go up by over $264 billion a year between now and next year. And the reason is because interest rates, the treasuries and so forth are now higher. The, the, the amount that investors are getting in order to invest in treasuries, which is what we use to fund the government, is now gonna go up. So as the interest rates have gone up on treasuries, that means we have to pay more to finance our debt because a lot of the debt that has been there has been, it hasn't been feathered out over a 50 year period of time. It's been two year Mm -hmm. to 10 year treasuries. And those have been really low. But now as they come for renewal, they're renewing at a higher rate, which means not only do you have this larger amount of debt at 33.6 trillion, but now you've got an interest rate which is going to be up by at least a third, if not a half, over the next two years based upon what the Congressional Budget Office is telling us right now. That is money that cannot go for defense. It's money that cannot go for the operation of the general operation of government itself. It is simply money which is going back out to fund that same $33 trillion in debt. So when we start talking about, well, how are we going to cut 
our, our, our debt and so forth. I remind people the most important thing we could do right now, right now, to save literally billions, hundreds of billions of dollars is to get the inflation rate back down, bring the interest rate back down on treasuries so that we can finance the debt that's already in existence at a lower rate than what it already is because we're borrowing the money to pay our own debt. So this is probably just because I'm ignorant of the way it works. If I go to a bank and I get a loan, I pay that loan back to the bank and the bank is the person receiving that interest for them being so gracious to allow me to do it. Who does this hundreds of billions of dollars of American interest, who, who gets that? Who does Inve that go to? Investors around the world. Is this BlackRock? A, a, I mean, a lot, sure, a, a lot in the United States. You walk in and you buy a treasury and uh, senior citizens may very well have decided, you know what, the market's down so I'm gonna buy treasuries for a while. Mm -hmm. They're picking up, you know, you can buy, right now you can get CDs at 5%. You couldn't get a CD for even 1% for a while. That money is based upon treasuries in a lot of cases. Um, and and as, the, as the interest on those treasuries has gone up, CDs, people that have CDs have seen an increase. But that's money that the federal government is paying mm -hmm. back out to individual investors. Now, some people will say, well, isn't that all in, in China? I'm sure there are investors in China that have that have uh, recognized that treasuries in the United States are a good deal, are particularly valuable, when right. you're when you're getting it. But it's around the world, and it's one of the reasons why the dollar has been so hot. And, and it's it's the reason why we've been able to finance our debt is because people are coming in saying, "Gee, I'll buy dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll you bet I will. I'll, I'll invest in dollar bills, and they're investing in billions of dollars." If we ever lose the confidence of those investors around the world that we're gonna pay our money back, then the interest rate is gonna skyrocket and inflation will explode even more than what it is today. So for me, I, I remind people, look, it's one thing to say we're gonna mind our P's and Q's and we're really gonna slow down government spending, and, and we should. In fact, we ought to get rid of the Federal Department of Education tomorrow, if not today. Uh, we really should get rid of a bunch of IRS agents because for the vast majority of those folks, they're going to be harassing average. It's not just going to be the rich. They're going to be out knocking on people's doors and nickel and diamond folks because they have to justify their existence. But if we could get rid of, of, of the Department of Education and if we could take some of the money away from the IRS for these 87,000 new agents, that I believe really would be an example, but it's going to be just a drop in the bucket for what we need and the biggest place that we could go right now to save the most number of dollars a year is interest on the debt. Mm. If we can reduce the interest rate on the debt, the average interest rate on the debt from say 4% or 5, 4.5% down to 2.5%, we save several hundred billion dollars and it does not affect government programs or policy. What is the biggest outlay of money of dollars today at the federal government? Today, today, today it would be the Department of Defense at about $885 billion Have we ever seen an audit of that? You, it, you can talk about getting an audit, but it's difficult to do an audit, in part because a number of it's classified. You're not gonna tell your adversaries where you are spending your money. You can audit some of it, it's huge, uh, you can spend a lot of money auditing it. Um, 
direct clean management and acquisition reform would be a better way to spend our money <laughs> today, right now, when we talk about acquiring items. To work your way through the bureaucracy in order to acquire a program or to acquire uh, materials is a mess. The president, the other day, I think, and I have heard nobody comment on it, um, and it makes me wonder if they, <clears throat> if it accidentally came out, um, might be notorious for saying things that aren't supposed to be said. Um, when he was talking about, it was during his uh, evening speech to the country a couple weeks ago, um, wanting to get more funding for Israel and Ukraine, and um, he then said out loud that the way the funding for Ukraine is working is none of that money is going to Ukraine. It's all going to U.S. defense contractors to replenish our supplies after we give Ukraine our old gear. Um, I've he I heard of that months back, and so I knew that's how it was working, but to hear him say it out loud to the public, and no one mentioned that, oh, okay, that, that seems a little <coughs> bit, a little bit, um, not dirty, but, but it, it seems like that's a way for us to, laundering money is the wrong way to say it, but push money into this defense industry while saying we're actually helping another country. How is it not just building our own, ourselves up outside of the normal appropriation system? Well, it, remember, this is part of the, the normal appropriations process. When you do a supplemental like this, it goes through a process. But the, 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 the point he's making is accurate mm -hmm. because they, Ukraine needs the resources now. And under our laws, we have to keep track of anything we give to another country. And so we're For how giving long? them what? For how long? <laughs> well, no, we, we, we have to keep track of, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's a part of the record as to how much we give them. And they can only do what has been authorized under, under law to, to, to do. So if we say we're going to do a $6 billion program, mm -hmm. they have to value at market the value of those resources that are then delivered to Ukraine. When they reach that point, they, they have to stop. Now, there are some limitations in that the president has some leeway to, to add in some others. But it's accurate to, to say that, you know, we've got supplies on hand. They need them now. 155 millimeter um, cannon shells is an example. Mm -hmm. Now, you replace one with another, it's basically a direct. There's no difference between a new one and an old one. So in some cases, it's a one for one. In some cases, if we have uh, particular types of munitions or particular types of equipment that have been around since the 1990s or whatever, we value that at 1990s equipment but we still have to replace it with newer equipment. So we'll build new equipment. It's not, it's not there available right now. Ukraine needs it right now, and it works for Ukraine right now. But yeah, when we, when we give them that equipment, we still need the equipment for future uh, protection of our country. But we value it based on the value, not of something new, but of something at a devalued rate because of its age. So. There is an accurate way of, of laying that out. In fact, there was actually a discrepancy because of the way that they were 
They were oh, and they just at randomly found a bunch of money. I remember that. Yeah, well, the, yeah. the bunch of money that they found wasn't really finding money. It was the fact it was just that accounting, essentially, right? It was the accounting because yeah. they had been valuing it at new value mm -hmm. rather than at de depreciated value <laughs> uh, because it was older equipment. And so when the auditors came in, they said, wait a minute, you're, right. you're, you're overvaluing what you've already sent over there. So you, you, have more, you have more space in which to release more of our equipment. Uh, the, the other piece on it that, that I don't think people realize is, is we need, because we have been lax, um, we've had a problem with supply lines in this country for our defensive purposes for decades. And because oh, that's not just a new problem? No, it is not. And, and the best example I can give you is, is there's clear testimony. I have testimony on the, on the record in, in front of the Armed Services Committee confirming that when our uh, task forces, our, our, our aircraft carriers, when they exchange, when they were during the Gulf Wars, they would have one team going over and another team getting ready to depart to come back to the United States. They would stop in the Mediterranean Sea. They would connect and they would offload unused ammunition from the task force which was leaving the Gulf area onto the new task force because we didn't have enough for two task forces. Mm. And so then they would bombs, ammunition, missiles and so forth would come off of one and come back onto the other and then they would head off down into the, the, to the Gulf. So we've talked for a number of years about, well, you know, why aren't we buying it? It's because every year as you look about what your resources are and about how much money you're putting into defense, people don't like spending money on defense. So you fight for every dime you can get for the defense because they don't, in many cases, understand that need or they say, you know what, people want a peace dividend because theoretically we are pretty close to being at peace. Well, that's changed again now and now it's a matter of we should have had more supplies of regular equipment and at the same time, we've still got to be developing those super weapon systems that will compete with the super weapon systems that China and Russia are developing as well. Why is it that every president, with the exception of one in my lifetime that I've been aware of presidential politics, which is H.W. Uh, Bush's in 1988, um, that was the first one I remember paying attention to. I don't think there's been a president that hasn't got into more wars around the world or, or been managing conflicts around the world and es escalating them. Trump, Trump was the one that I think de-escalated from everything I can read and pu pulled things back. Um, why is that? I mean, we're ramping back up to Obama era talking points with Biden now. Yeah, Reagan, Ronald Reagan, uh, was able to pull back and, and basically take out Yeah, I was Russia. too young to, to and, pay attention to him. Yeah, but, but it was peace yeah. through strength. Yeah. And what he did was is he built up our military. He, he put the money into the super weapon systems. Stealth was an example. Um, our strategic systems were at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. We were dominant. And when you're dominant, people don't want to mess with you. And they also figured he was kind of a cowboy and that if they messed with him, he'd take them out. <laughs> And you know what, that, that's okay to have that type of a thought process that you, you know, you're tough enough to where you're not gonna put up with other people nickel and mm -hmm. diming you. And um, since that time, there was this goal of, well, the Cold War is over, we're gonna have a peace dividend, we're not gonna have to put as much money in. Well, while we were looking at just fighting terrorists after, you know, in the Gulf War, and then in, after 9-11, we weren't fighting superpowers, we were fighting terrorists. 
And our focus came down to how do you knock down doors? What do you use for urban fighting? Um, how do you do strategic small attacks that don't take out a civilian population, but they're, they're very tactical in nature where you take out one car at a time, or you take out one person in one car at a time? We got to be very, very good at it. But while we were focused on that, our adversaries, China in particular, were looking at the, the not the tactical, but, but the, uh, the, the ability to talk about strategic capabilities. While we were slowing down our space capabilities and spending less money in space, they were spending more. When we were slowing down our development of new stealth weapon systems, they were developing their, their, well, their, their systems. When we were slowing down the deployment of submarines, super submarines, they were actually looking at our submarines and building submarines of their own that were capable of doing what our submarines were capable of doing. Their aircraft now, they have, they have stealth aircraft now. And so during a time in which we weren't investing in the new technologies as quickly as others were, they're catching up. Now that they are catching up, suddenly we're discovering that they're pushing their, their, their allies to challenge us in a lot of different ways. Iran uses uh, you know, uh, terrorist groups in the Middle East. They fund them, they push them, and they'll nickel and dime us and push us and, and, and cause problems and friction for us. Putin looked at us and said, we don't, have the, we don't have the heart to fight him. So he takes Crimea. Not a shot's fired. He just takes Crimea. What does he say then? Well, if I can take Crimea, why don't I take the rest of the eastern part of Ukraine? Well, then he's being told by his own people don't worry, they won't fire a shot. They'll let you come in. They're scared of you. They'll welcome you as a conquering hero. What he forgot was that Ukraine was starting to enjoy freedom. And they were starting to enjoy the benefits of being part of the Western culture. And they had a leader who decided rather than getting a ticket out of the country, he was going to ask for bullets and he was going to stand and fight. And that leadership caught on in Ukraine. And... Uh, because of Zelensky, Ukraine has a fighting chance. And so now you have Russia going, man, we got a problem here because we're stuck in our own little Vietnam here, only it's our next door neighbor. And their conventional weapon systems have been found to be obsolete and their training has been found to be incomplete. And now they are to the point where they're holding on for dear life. At the same time, Xi Jinping sitting in, in, uh, in, in China, looking over at Taiwan is saying, I wonder whether or not the West really does have the heart to stick with an invaded country. I wonder if they really would challenge me if I decide to take out Taiwan. And he's watching. And if we walk away from Taiwan, he's learned his lesson. He's figured it out. He knows we don't have the heart and that Taiwan will be an easier picking now than later. At the same time, you now have in Israel, you have, you have Hamas coming in and absolute, creating absolute atrocities. And they're wondering whether or not the United States would actually stick with their ally or if we're going to turn a blind eye to them. This is a challenge all the way across the board and in all cases because they wonder whether or not we've spent more time worrying about small time stuff rather than the strategic superpower responsibilities that we always have to maintain. So, so we became single-minded, essentially, <clears throat> with our defense outlook. 
we, um, we looked at other ways in which we would spend money. Um, we, we, we did not focus on the primary, most important item that Congress has, which is the defense of our country. And when you get away from that being your primary responsibility, and you start looking at other things instead, that's when you run into trouble. So then should our federal dollars be pulled from most domestic things that should belong to the states and then focus on, I mean, we, we wouldn't need to raise taxes if that were the case. In, in my right? opinion, in, in my opinion, the answer to that is philosophically yes. And it's the reason why I look at this. Tell me the number of people that the Department of Education actually educates. The answer <laughs> is zero. Now, they do handle the student loan program, but it's a, a, it's a cluster. Yeah. It's, it's a mess. Mm -hmm. We had a really good one. I, when, I, when I was growing up, we used what's called the Stafford Program. It was part of our national defense policy. They took it away from the banks because they said the banks were making too much money. And instead what it was done, it was brought back into the federal government where it has been a bureaucratic nightmare. Mm -hmm. And now we're, not even, now we're not even gonna require paybacks on it. And yet at the same time, um, that money that was going in there was being committed to fund other programs because of the interest rate that these students were paying. Mm -hmm. No, if I had my way, I would shut down the federal student loan program and replace it with one that was straightforward. Any young man, woman who had qualified in high school to go to college, regardless of their income, could borrow money to go to college. They would have to pay it back, and it was not a forgivable loan. For those individuals that were of low income, there could be a subsidy applied for others, but for everybody, it's very similar to the way it used to be. We could borrow, I think we used to be able to borrow $2,500 <laughs> per, per uh, calendar year. It went, mm -hmm. I think, to $3,000 per calendar year, as long as you were in school. Right now, what I would say it should be is, is based upon whatever the average cost of college was in your region. Here in South Dakota, it's like $18,000, yeah. you know? Well, and you take a percentage of that and you allow people to borrow a percentage of that. And the cost of the federal government should be maintaining the interest on it until such time as they're out. And then a nominal interest because the best defense we could have is a well-educated citizenry. And that means getting a technical school degree, getting a, getting a college degree, but something so that you have the ability to not only make a living, a good living, and be able to take care of your family, but also one that when we need your technical expertise to defend our country, it was there and available. So uh, who's the real problem in the secondary education <clears throat> issue? It, is it the universities that are overpriced? Um, I mean, I, it shouldn't cost you $100,000 to go to a four-year college. Well, should it? In South Dakota, I think it's probably about eighty-five dollars to 88000 for four for years four. in that neighborhood. I think we're pretty reasonable on it. Well, um, co comparatively, but a, right. But, a pickup, but is, that, is that over? But a pickup is $65,000 in a lot point. of cases. So <laughs> right. it's, it's like, yeah. you know, is, is it worth a vehicle? Is it worth a new vehicle? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I remember back when I was going to school, you know, I, I think I had a grand total of about nine to $10,000 in student debt. But you could buy a car back then right. <laughs> for about you know eighty five hundred dollars. So, in in with regard to the relativity of the different products and so forth, I'm not going to say that the universities are overpriced. But what I do want when they get out is to be able to get a job in which they are good at something. I hire young people in my office, 
they are very capable on a computer system. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, can't, I mean, so they understand that. Um, it doesn't mean that they're perfect on lots of other things or that they have the same skills that I had, but I clearly don't have the skills that they have today. Mm -hmm. So it's relative with regard to what the expectations should be, but universities, I think, can do a really good job as long as there's a goal of getting them out and they know kind of what they want to do when they get out. I don't mean that you got to know going in you're going to be, as a freshman, what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life but you should have a basic level of skill sets that are applicable to a number of different uh, a number of different job sets by the time you get out. And the other thing is is we've got to get back to civics and I mean civics in high school. We have to teach not not the difference in policies between Republicans and Democrats and independents, but how our government works. Mm -hmm. How the legislative body works. Um, what a president is expected to do, what a member of the House is expected to do, what a member of the Senate, what a citizen can do, what their rights are, and what the limitations are that they have, and the expectations that they participate in government, and why. And uh, a lot of that's missing today. And I, I'd love to see that get back in so that most folks, when they come in, they understand and if you're a member of the United States Senate, you're working in Washington, D.C. You're not necessarily going to be in your state capital. But if you're a member of the House of Representatives in South Dakota, you're going to be there for a grand total of probably 40 days working. And then you're back home living and, and putting up with the laws that, that you have created. I think those are important things. And I think we should have a civics class and an opportunity for young people to learn that as early as possible. Well, if you, if you try to naturalize... You have to learn that. So why shouldn't you, if you're born here, have to learn as well? I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, one thought I had on the Ukraine issue. Um, you mentioned that uh, Russia's kind of at a standstill right now, realizing that it's not working. What's success at this point? Because, it, I mean... Most wars. But Ukraine yeah. isn't winning. No, m m well... And actually, Ukraine is are making they? very slow inroads. Yeah, they are, and they're, and they're and and but they can't get into a war of attrition with Russia. Russia is still so much larger and oh, so yeah. many more people. But what is happening, and, and as with most conflicts and most wars, there's a point at which both sides are to the point where they decide that it's not worth it any longer just to fight. Now, other than the Korean conflict, in which there was never a cease, other than a ceasefire. There's never been an, 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 end, that, an yeah. end to that, but there is peace there right now. Yeah. I suspect that that may very well be part of what might happen in Ukraine in the future, where there is a ceasefire, but for Ukraine to allow Putin to simply take over any part of their country, probably not politically acceptable in Ukraine right now. They're tired of it, but they see themselves being able to continue to erode that front line and they look at Crimea and they recognize that Crimea sitting right on the Black Sea where it's at is a huge asset. But whether or not the Crimeans themselves are prepared to make a choice to be either Russian or Ukrainian at this point is I think part of the question that has to be determined there. Is Israel within its right to be what looks like rubbleizing Palestine? Israel has a right to defend itself 
just as we had a right to defend ourselves after 9-11. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, we will hold Israel to a higher standard than we do Hamas because everybody knows Hamas is a terrorist organization. Um, Hamas has to go away. They have to be eliminated. Uh, we recognize Israel's right to do that. At what cost, though? Well, Wait, but isn't here, that the question? Here's the other piece of that. They still have a responsibility to actually abide by the rules of war. And that is something which does not allow them to go in and nonchalantly or irresponsibly kill civilians intentionally. Um, there is, uh, for each country, a level at which they determine whether or not the target, um, a Hamas leader, is worth the loss of life of civilians. We can't identify necessarily what that is for them, but history will judge whether or not they were appropriate or not. I, I think the Israelis want to abide by the law of war, but they recognize very clearly that Hamas is using uh, civilians as human shields, and I think most of the world understands that. That can't be allowed either. Do you, do you think they would treat the um, going after them the same way if Hamas was in Israel, hiding behind Israelis? They are hiding behind Israelis right now. They have over 200 hostages right now and um, Israel is saying one way or another uh, we're going to take you out and we want to save the hostages we're going to do everything we can but they know that those people are at risk because of what they're doing and they know as they go through tunnel by tunnel and start taking out tunnels the risk of killing those hostages is also there they have decided to to do their best not to kill hostages and not to kill civilians, but they're going to take Hamas out. Who wrote this executive order on AI that Biden just signed? I Do talk, you know? I, I don't know. Um, I, I talked to the president about it. Um, there are some, some, they're pretty broad in terms of what he's talking about. I haven't read the whole thing, I've, but I've visited directly with the president about it. We're not far off in terms of what our goals are. Number one, we want to make sure that AI development is here in the United States rather than any place else. We also know that there are other places that are inviting some of the sharpest uh, developers of AI to come to their countries, not necessarily just China either. Uh, UAE is, is working really hard to become a leader in, in, in AI development. Um, there are Americans that are working there, developing AI. We want to be the place where AI develops. That means that we have to have uh, incentives built in for them to do it here. We also have to have guidelines laid out for protecting privacy and transparency for our people here. But there, there's something else that sometimes gets lost in this crossfire between protecting privacy and developing incentives. And that is, is that you can have good policy, which is regulatory in nature, which incentivizes people to develop AI here. The best example, patents and copyrights. Why do people want to create ideas here in the United States? Because they can protect their interest in them with patents and copyrights. We want to make sure that that same thing applies when it comes to artificial intelligence. This is where we want people to come because they know that there are real benefits to doing it here. The other piece is that if anybody else gets ahead of us in the development of AI, our national security is at risk. Our code breaking is at risk. Our intelligence gathering is at risk. 
and some of the weapon systems are absolutely at risk if other adversaries can do more with AI than we can. So we have no choice but absolutely to win the war with the development of AI and the application of AI in our weapon systems. Second piece on it is, is we have no choice but to make darn sure that we put in appropriate regulatory oversight to protect the privacy of our citizens and to provide transparency so you know the difference between something which is AI generated versus something which is not AI generated. That I think is gonna be some of the biggest challenges that we've got to face. I was listening to some um, tech, way smarter than me, um, dissect that executive order. And their claim is the language of it is so broad that it, if you actually follow it, you are giving the federal government the entire back door to your company. All of it. And, and, and it is so onerous that no one should do it. And it's Siri on your phone. That falls into this category. It's, it's essentially an algorithm that allows you to analyze data. If you have that at some scale, you are required under this thing to give all of that data to the government. That, that feels bad well, if you're, as a if you're free market in China, system. If you're in China, that's already the law. Okay. Okay. We don't want that in the United States. Right, but this does that, doesn't well, it? Well, the, exec no, the, the executive order can't do that. It's got to be legislated. Now, he can talk about doing it, and he can suggest guidelines. What he can also do is to say, if an agency of the federal government wants to do business with someone, they can expect that you're going to follow a set of guidelines. But his executive order, as it's being put out right now, um, we have not done anything at the federal level to to legislatively authorize. So this has no teeth? I don't believe it does. Okay. I, I believe, I, now, when it comes to them purchasing something, they can, on, a, on an agency by agency basis, mm -hmm. listen to the executive direction and say, oh, and by the way, in our contract, we're gonna require something of you. But those same agencies are also gonna have to recognize that those, those companies may very well, based on what you're telling me, those same companies may very well look at it and say, eh, no thanks, I'm not gonna sell yeah. to you then. Right. So, you know, look, normally, and I'll just say this, normally a Democrat administration is going to overregulate, <laughs> and, um, you know, and we're going to be wary of that. There are some legitimate regulatory things that we can do to actually assist in the development of AI in an orderly fashion. But the real issue here is incentivizing them to stay here in the United States and develop it, and to recognize that there are some dangers anytime you have advanced capabilities in computer systems. AI is not new, it's been around for 50 years. We just called it machine learning back then. Mm -hmm. There's nothing special about it except that now we've combined appropriate really big databases and algorithms that can help a computer to learn from its own mistakes and finally supercomputing capabilities that very few other countries in the world have. Mm -hmm. That supercomputing capability is the key to the rest of it. So, number one, we restrict other countries from getting the supercomputing capabilities that we've got. And second of all, we watch as algorithms are developed. And in some cases, on the uppermost edge of the algorithms, the federal government really has to be aware of what you're doing in those very top upper level algorithm discussions. Why? 
because some of those, if they are, if they are um, outside of the norm, um, and if they're released freely within the world, our adversaries will take advantage of that. And so some of those we're gonna want not to have been freely given away or being sold to the rest of the world until we have it inside and, uh, and utilized inside of our own systems. What's the real potential threat or danger of AI broadly? The, the, the ability to, to generate, just as an example, elections as an example, uh, to be able to put out fake news in, in an instant, that if you, can, if you don't have the ability to identify it immediately as being fake, um, people will believe it. Um, the war of the world's all over again, as an example. Um, but to be able to do that in short order and to do it multiple times, to attribute to someone things that, that, they're, that they didn't do but make it look like they did do. This is, this is not new though, uh, is it? Well, except that it's gotten to be very, very good. It's just fast. Yeah, and so what you need is, is artificial intelligence to be able to identify mm. that fake stuff as well. And some people say, well, why don't you just waterlog it? You know, put, put, put a watermark on it and, mm -hmm. and set it up. Because then, if you did that and said, okay, if it's watermarked, that's artificial intelligence. So what do you do if you you're a bad the guy? Good stuff. You watermark right. the good stuff. Yeah. So uh, you know, the, our goal here should be to identify that which is put out by the federal government or by the state governments accurately and watermark that, mm -hmm. uh, but not allow others to, to you know, you, you, the real challenge here is, is to be able to identify and to let the public know when something might be a questionable value yeah. or accuracy. You co-chaired, I think, a, a secret meeting, closed door meeting with uh, tech people um, a month ago, something like mm -hmm. that. Um, what came out of that? Actually, some really good advice from both sides. There were people in there that disagree with one another. Mm -hmm. um, the reason why it was close to the press is, is we didn't want everybody to come in with their attorneys prepared statement and then shut up, you know. I said my thing and, oh, right. and so we didn't want them to feel like everything they said was gonna be repeated in the press and, and uh, knock down their stock values and all that kind of stuff. So what we said was is, okay, we're gonna bring it in, it's gonna be closed to the public, but, but we had several hundred people inside that were staffers and members of, of the Senate who could listen to what these guys had to say. And they were very frank with each so other. So is it on the record? Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's on the record to the, to the congressional staff. Mm, okay. But it's not being released because we didn't want them to have to justify what they said okay. publicly because uh, it might impact mm -hmm. stock prices for that, or people might be then turning around saying, well, you know, this isn't exactly accurate or that's not exactly accurate. What we got was a very frank discussion and ideas about the direction to go. And one area that I really liked is the idea that we've got really smart people using artificial intelligence, developing artificial intelligence, but you don't have enough people in government that understand it. But you'd never be able to afford to buy them either. So why don't we create, very sim similar to our, our, our ASTM standards, why don't we create a system where we can borrow from the public sector individuals who are really bright and bring them in and be almost like referees. As one member said to the group, you know, if you're gonna play a basketball game, you've gotta have referees that understand the game as well as the players do. Well, that made sense. And so that's a lot of the focus that we've had is, is how do we make sure that we get from differing points of view a good cross-section mm -hmm. of folks that have differing points of view, you know, and that have opinionated 
differently, but that understand that there is a, a differing point of view and that that's, that, that's gotta be maintained, you know, that, that separation. Well, that was a really good suggestion, but it came in a closed session. I'm not sure they would have said that publicly. Mm. And I'm not sure if all the folks that were there agreeing with one another, who <laughs> normally disagree with one another, yeah. would have said that, or would they have kept an adversarial stance like they do in public? Yeah, I, I, that just drives me mad because you know the, well, you clearly know it because you're in it. The animosity is much less behind closed doors than it is out front, right? Absolutely. Look, Republicans and Democrats in the Senate, we get along. Uh, behind closed doors, whether we're in armed services or on the Intel Committee, when the doors are closed and we can talk freely, we have very, very good discussions. But then once you're in front of the press and the TV cameras are rolling, then people read from a prepared script and they, they become animated. Well, and it's for your next election, off. primarily, yeah. right? Well, some of it is. But a lot of that is. But it's, it's, it's playing, for the, playing for, the, for the home team, mm -hmm. rather than trying to get something accomplished. This is a beautiful facility you have here. It's home. Home, home. you have, right? Yeah, it's home. Um, did you build this place? Yeah, we built it. Gene and I built it. Uh, we started in 2009, finished it in 2010 when I left office. I left office in January of 2011, mm -hmm. but it was finished up so we could move in when we left the residence, the governor's residence. We moved over here onto the river. Yeah, Beautiful, absolutely. I, well, I don't know how you want to go away from this. Gorgeous. We made it <laughs> We made it for family gatherings mm -hmm. and we made it so that it was a welcoming place for all the kids and grandkids and a place where you know, we could have our holidays and so forth. And um, yeah, it's on the river and it's, uh, the, as you can tell, the kids love it. They feel right at home here. The grandkids feel right at home as they come in and out, mm -hmm. as you probably heard on the podcast. It's wonderful. But it's great to have them do it. And it's hard to leave this place. It's hard to leave it and to head back to DC, but the challenge right now is in DC. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is if we want grandkids and kids to have good opportunities in the future, then maybe we need a little bit of common sense in Washington, D.C. as well, and hopefully we provide some of that. One of the, the central things that I've been trying to talk with people about as I go through these is uh, the idea of legacy and what that looks like. Um, do we need it? What's it for? You know, the, the value of it. Um, just strictly from a generational thing with you, you've got 10 phenomenal pieces of legacy as your grandkids. What is Mike Brown's legacy gonna be in 50 years? They'll figure that out then. What we gotta do right now is, is everybody's got a limited amount of time here. Question is, is what do you do with your time and mm -hmm. what do you focus on? What will be you know, the best in the future. Number one, my job right now is to make sure that this country is defended and that we have the best resources to keep us out of a, out of a war. I don't wanna lose any of my grandkids in a war, which means the young men and women that are wearing the uniform, I want them to have the best of everything and I want them to have such a powerful capability that nobody wants to fight with us. But the second piece is I want them to look back at government and say that we, um, we provided um, a sense of government that was, that was true, that, that reflected um, what the Founding Fathers expected in the first place, which is really a, a government that is responsive mm -hmm. and not one that has the challenge of corruption. 
um, not one that is um, incapable of making decisions. Um, we want one that is seen as, you know, doing what it was supposed to do and then letting people live their lives. And um, hopefully, you know, working as governor, we've provided part of that. And we've looked to the future to build for chances for kids to stay here in the state. Biggest challenge here in South Dakota we have is keeping our kids here. It's the reason why we have research facilities here now that we didn't have before. It's um, um, the reason that I want new, new and advanced technologies to be here because I think that's the future for a mm -hmm. lot of our kids. Um, I want the quality of life here to be such that, you know, generations from now they look back and say, wow, what a place. It stood the test of time and it's still the place we want to call home. Those are the things that I think pay dividends and um, it's, what we all, it's what we all ought to be working for. Yeah. Um, thinking of the next generations too, um, I know the last time we talked, um, I asked about the idea of term limits um, at the federal level. <clears throat> but I, as I think through it now, one of the things that I, I guess I don't know if I like, because I, I, I'm an advocate for term limits because I think that it should, you shouldn't be guaranteed that position. And you know, I think of Ted Kennedy. You know, that, that seat is the Ted Kennedy seat. Dianne Feinstein's is the Dianne Feinstein seat. And you know, both of those people died in those chairs. Um, quite possibly, they were there longer than they should have been. Um, how do we change the mindset of people sitting, because I, I guarantee you in my lifetime we're not going to see term limits at that level. It's just not going to happen because no one will vote for it, obviously. How do you change the mindset of, I'm not here for me? Because from my feeling of, in talking to you and getting to know you, that is not you at all. It's, look, here's the deal. Um, at the executive level, you want term limits. The challenge we have is, is bureaucracies don't have term limits. Mm -hmm. So you have bureaucrats that are there forever. They gather a huge amount of knowledge and a lot of power. People that, that represent us are the elected people. Folks in California could have fired Diane Feinstein years ago. They could have. Don't, they don't well, want people in, well they don't, they don't <laughs> want people in South Dakota to tell them who they should elect. We don't want people in California telling somebody in South Dakota who to elect. Mm. But the people here in South Dakota have that choice every time there's an election. So for those folks, they look at it and they make a decision as to who should represent them or who the best choice at that time to represent them is. Um, from my perspective, I don't want to see legislative term limits because if you do that, you give up the ability to gather as much information and as much knowledge as a bureaucrat who we spend most of our time fighting with. I found that at the state level, and I find it 10 times that bad at the federal level. Really? Um, but to me, every single election is an opportunity to make a decision like that. Now, some people will look at it and simply say, look, I'm going to do two terms, and I'm going to get out. Some will say, I'm going to do not more than one more term and then I'm gonna get out. Um, I think each individual has to decide that based on what they think their best way to contribute is. It's hard to make a decision like that mm -hmm. 
but it's one that some people decide to do. In some cases, people actually make that decision for them. Yeah. Do you have another term in you? Don't know yet. I won't make that decision. Um, it's 26, for, right? Is yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll wait and decide mm -hmm. whether or not I want to do that based on how I'm feeling um, you know, after the next election. And then I'll have time to, to make a reasonable decision. I don't, know what, I don't know what I want to do yet when I grow up. <laughs> um, what do you think of your new chief of staff? Oh, you mean this kid from Millbank? <laughs> yeah, look, look he, he, he's growing up with us. Um, he came in. He's done a really good job um, with regard to communications. And uh, um, he's got a good network going right now in D.C. But he's still a guy from South Dakota, and he understands South Dakota. And he'll come back. You know, Desmond is going to be in, in South Dakota, probably not as much as he was before because he's got obligations with the staff in Washington now as well. But uh, Desmond Ward is going to be a good, uh, huge part of, of, our, of our program moving forward. And as he would probably tell you, I expect them to not give up their South Dakota roots and that at some point in the future, uh, he and the other folks that come from South Dakota, I want them coming back to South Dakota. I want them to, to find their home eventually right mm -hmm. here. Thank you. Absolutely. I really appreciate well, this. It's been a great honor to be invited into your home. So. Thanks for taking time to sit down with me. And Appreciate it. We don't get a chance chat. to do a podcast very often where we can just sit down and talk about some of those really important issues out there. And the part that, for me right now, that really still worries me is, is we can see right now where our debt is going to explode just based on the interest rates that come along with what are some really poor policy decisions at the legislative level and clearly at the executive level. And everything we should be focused on right now, number one, get those interest rates back down while slowing down mm -hmm. growth in government. Um, I heard one guy just yesterday, uh, he is speculating based on whatever, he's an investor, that um, China may be looking to um, base their dollar, their, their yuan, uh, on gold. And if that happens, then the American dollar tanks. Is that true? I don't think so. From your no. perspective? No. No. The, uh, look, the, the, the dollar is based upon the value of the economy to mm -hmm. support that and to pay it back. Our economy is still the strongest in the world. And right now, China has got some really long-term problems that won't go away, including you know, basically having a declining population. There's yeah, nobody. There's their nobody, own fault, of course. There's, uh, absolutely. <laughs> right. look, yeah. look, they've they've aborted uh -huh. baby girls for two generations. They had a one-child policy. Their total fertility rate is 1.26. Wow. Ours is 1.64 right now. So we're not, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Mm -hmm. We should be having, we should be having more kids here <laughs> right. in the United States. But I will tell you this as well. Our economy will respond because this is the place people are still trying to get into. Mm. China doesn't have that problem. There's nobody trying to get into China. And we got to maintain that. We've got to be the place, as Ronald Reagan said, the shining city on the hill. Yeah. Well, we've got to remember that. We still want to be the shining city on the hill and we have that capability. But that means freedoms, a place where people can come and express themselves and feel safe. 
we've got to work at that feeling safe right now. Senator, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. Senator Rounds, thanks again for letting us come into your home, invade your space a little bit, and get a little more insight into how you see the world. Theinterviewpodcast.org is where you can find the rest of our conversations. And remember, it's also where you can help support the show. Another valuable thing to do is tell more people about it. Share it out. Get it across your influence groups. Get more conversations out there. Also, listen on a Podcasting 2.0 app. The Fountain app is the one I tend to use. You can also boost Satoshi's there, and you can directly support this podcast just by listening on the Fountain app. Thanks a lot for listening. Have a great day. We'll see you next time.